Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Break, break, break. Bulldog 7, this is Blue 1. Troops in contact. Coordinates to follow. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey everyone, it's Bram Connolly here, retired Special Forces Operator and Officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. Just before we launch into today's show, I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture. Lessons are self-paced and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program though is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the Defence Force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors and even some Special Forces selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. There's a one-off payment of $99 for the complete program. Check out the website on www warrioru.com.au That's warrior and the letter U. Now, to introduce today's sponsor and then our guest. This week's episode is sponsored by SWORD, Special Operations Research and Development. So, I should say up front that I know the founder of SWORD. We were in the Tactical Assault Group together. In fact, we were in the same team during our CT training. And in the years that followed, much of the load-carrying equipment that I trusted in some of the harshest places on Earth was supplied by SWORD. It's no stretch to say that this equipment is built by operators for operators. Actually, come to think of it, my first ever plate carrier was SWORD, and at one stage, probably every piece of field kit that I carried had been purchased either by myself or the unit. Check out the website, and by using the code WARRIOR, you can receive 10% off the listed price on any item. That's 10% off just by using the code WARRIOR. Yeah, well, I deployed with the first company into Afghanistan. So I literally finished, I think I did my Rio throughout of 2005 and deployed on that second uh, or that late part of 2005 in in the headquarters, actually, Battle Capital. Yeah. 
um, in the FCE. Then, yeah, everything rolled after that because then we had Timor 06 and then on and on and on and on. And is that where, actually, that's where you and I first met, was in Timor in 06 when I was the Special Ops Liaison Officer to 3rd Brigade, to Brigadier Slater. And, and you were there. I remember meeting you. I think you were working for, yeah, I can't mention his name, but you were working with a major friend of mine at the time when you were a captain. Yeah, I was in that particular company. Yeah. Um, that was an interesting trip. Mm. I mean, um, you know, getting to spend a lot of time with Alfredo Renato up on the mountaintop. You know, the whole political situation on, on, on the ground was, yeah, it was interesting. I actually enjoyed that trip quite a bit. Yeah, it was, I was, um, like I said, I was Brigadier Slater's. So as a liaison officer between your group and Third Brigade, and it was like being the meat in the sandwich, forever apologising to each side <laughs> for the for the other yeah, for, yeah. The, for the other people's actions. But it gave me a really good political understanding of how the military works. Probably shaped a lot of the way that I sort of went forward as an officer into the future as well. It was my second year as a captain that job. So and it was so it was a high profile the job that you've done as well, which was um, you know the um, officer in charge of selection to to that job so that was a strange really strange job yeah I, I must admit i was probably i don't know if you say lucky or unlucky that i didn't i didn't actually after my time in socom i actually never actually went out of socom yeah for the whole period um you know I, I guess they the idea is to go out of socom to gain a better understanding of general army before coming back in but um uh, i guess from my side of thinking i, I fortunately didn't have to do that probably not a bad thing yeah, true. Hey, that um, that photo of you, that photo of you on the mountaintop in Afghanistan, that iconic photo, which I love to throw out there because it always gives me a million hits on Instagram, um, and and it will be the cover for this this podcast. What, where was that taken, and who took that, or if you can say, and and you know what was the what was the reasoning behind that? I think um, you know, probably like yourself, I think all of us wanted to take, or I know I did. Just one iconic photo per tour of which I was overseas. Um, you know, I guess times have changed these days with phones and everything else. But back in those days, obviously, it was cameras. Mm. That particular photo was the last mission um, of that tour in 2008. It was an interesting job in a place called Gizab, uh, up in the north of, uh, of Oregon province. And uh, basically, it was... Uh, we launched that as an air mobile operation into Gizab and I was with a team of snipers that went and basically landed a black hawk. I think we did a one-wheel landing on the side of a mountain in the middle of the night, um, disembarked the chopper and obviously completed the mission, which was only, a, a, you know, a number of hours. And that photo was basically before we were getting picked up by chopper again off the top of the mountain. Last mission literally the last few hours, you know, of, of fighting, I guess, for that tour. And I just literally said to one of the boys, hey, just take a quick snap while I'm here. And, you know, I guess for, from my side of things, it was, I guess, the photo of that tour. It, it is it is an awesome photo. Yeah, and, and I'm, you need to send me the high-def version of it because I've only got the crappy version that I've probably reused a million times. It is awesome. And there is some awesome... Every guy does seem to have that photo, you know, that that iconic photo, like you said, which is pretty cool. Like mine's the one sitting there in the puff jacket with the cut-down water bottle, drinking a huge amount of BPA and, and Nescafe in the freezing morning after a night of fighting. That wasn't your last mission, though, mate. That wasn't your last mission in 2008. There was another one that you're not talking about, 
which was where you took my company on a nursery patrol. Then you went down because you knew there was going to be fighting. So you left me up with the vehicles and you friggin' went down with everyone else and we hit an IED and I had to bloody manage it. Do you remember that? And then you came back up halfway through the middle of that. You piece well, of you shit. Know, I mean, when I say last mission, last mission of, of our company, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking but, about. Because um, we, I got to this. I was, I was in charge of moving the vehicle packets around. You just come back up, and I, and and you were like, yeah, yeah, crack on, Bram. Like you need the, you need to, you know, get a bit of command time going on. And we went up to this blooming, this choke point, and I'm like, okay, we'll just go slowly around this way. So we went around that way, and then the next vehicle that came through hits an IED right in the center of it, and I'm just like, ah, oh, no. You just like, yeah, and luckily no one was too badly injured, but but it was a fucking messy thing to have. You know, we had two companies on the ground there, and you know, you quite rightly said to me, every time you go outside the wire here, you're going to be shooting. I was like, nah, bullshit. And you were like, yeah, okay, that's what that's what that whole trip was like. Yeah, I guess you know, like we can we can look back at things and have a little bit of a joke, which you know uh, might sound a little weird, but yeah, I mean, literally every every. Every mission outside the wire, you know, something's happening. And, you know, there's not too many missions that uh, you aren't in, engaging gunfire or elements of your, your force element engaging, you know, the enemy. So, yeah, I mean, that that tour uh, was a good one. I, I enjoyed, you know, the 2008 tour was very good. It was definitely better than our 2010 tour. But, um, hmm. yeah, interesting times. Yeah, because I did the one after you in 2008 and then I think the one after you in 2010 as well. Yeah, you're in a different position then, though. I was a platoon commander in 2010. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about true grit mostly, but it's just such a, you know, it's so good to catch up with you anyway and just shoot the shit about Afghanistan. And people don't realize that these conversations are the sort of conversations that we would have been having in the captain's room back in 2nd Commando Regiment until I think they, I don't think they have that same thing now like they used to have. But, you know, it's a good way to decompress as well to sit around and talk about, you know, things that happened and, things that you did, decisions that you made. And like you say, you can laugh about some of the stuff now. Yeah, so you did four tours in total to Afghanistan. Is that right? Three tours. I end up taking a certain prime minister in 2008 for a meet and greet the troops. Are you allowed to talk um, about that? So or? The, the Honourable Kevin Rudd. Okay, so. how'd that go? Yeah, look, I'd previously been on the ground in Iraq in 04, mm. uh, which was back as a... As a paratrooper captain uh, with the security detachment there. Mm. So I was lucky enough to be on the ground. Pretty sure it was Anzac Day 2004 when um, John Howard came across. Mm. And that was a similar trip. I wasn't in charge of the trip, but I was on the on security on the ground, actually, in the air traffic control tower of Baghdad, actually. Anyway, I, I did get to meet the Prime Minister of that particular time and a very genuine person, I guess you could say, for the reasons for being there. Obviously, there's you know strategic reasons why prime ministers go to uh, trips like that. The second trip, I guess, in 08, probably a little less ingenuous in regards to reasoning and all the rest of it. You know, the trip was probably two weeks of planning, eight hours on the ground physically. Successful mission. You know, we, we, we certainly ticked all the boxes. Mm. But yeah, it, it gives you an insight, I guess, to behind the scenes at the political level for, you know, reasons for doing things and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I've always wondered, what is the what would the federal police CPP team be feeling like when they've got to hand over the principal to this bunch of SF guys at the airport? I mean, I wonder what goes through. I've got a mate, a very good mate, actually, who's on the Prime Minister's detail, so I could always ask him, I guess. 
but I'm just wondering what you what you would think of that. Yeah, I reckon. Well, I mean, personally, I guess that I, w- I would assume there'd be a little bit of jealousy there. You know, getting to go on such a trip. Certainly, I mean, we met uh, we met the prime minister in the UAE at a certain private airfield. Gave him a briefing. Obviously, fitted him up for their body armor and everything else, and then flew into country. Mm. Uh, once we took off, that was it. The the AFP, you know, stayed behind in country. Did the mission, you know, eight, nine hours, we were back on deck at the same airfield on the back of the ramp. Uh, we weren't legally allowed to carry firearms in the UAE off off base, and that was a private airfield. So literally it was the back of the ramp that we handed off the Prime Minister back to the AFP, and uh, and that was it. Yeah. What an awesome job. And, and I mean, they're not, they're not really, they're not skilled to be able to do that in-country anyway, to that, not to the places where you were taking him. But yeah, it would be it would be so difficult to be the the head of the CPP or the close protection, you know, unit or whoever it is, and go, yep, here's my guy. Look after him. <laughs> See you in a few hours. Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. But but I think you know they they understand there's various elements, you know, from communications to various skill sets that they don't hold. You know, let alone I guess the the fitting into the whole military situation. You know, we're on military aircraft, we're landing at military bases. You know, we're uniform members, mm. uh, so I guess there's there's a number of elements there that I think that you know, although although there might be a little bit of jealousy there, I think they probably understand the reasonings behind it. Hey, so a while ago I did an Instagram post and I used you, a couple of other guys, you know, Dan Pronk, a few other people who are in the sort of social media space, and it had a huge response. And I said um, that I'd finally worked out why my special forces friends were you know successful in what they did and what that was was that reason that they were successful across the board is that they didn't wait for some lofty guideline or you know permission from the universe they didn't wait for permission from anyone they just went and did what they wanted to do and i'm, I'm wondering what what you think about that adam with with regards to your transition from the military to where you are now you know was it a difficult was there a difficult question that you had to ask in your mind or did it feel really strange to you to go okay i'm going to do this and i'm not going to ask someone for permission i'm not going to wait for some colonel somewhere some general somewhere because i'm institutionalized to go yes you can do this like there was no one above you anymore to ask permission the only person that could give you permission was yourself and i really want to hammer that home to people that that's that's the difference between people who are successful and not but do you want to talk about that for a sec yeah, I guess you could you could probably say uh, at the time was was probably maybe a little foolhardy that the decision you know when when you think about I guess um, essentially you're throwing away in some ways looking at it throwing away a military career you know almost 15 years being in the ADF total um, you know the majority of that is SOCOM enjoyed what I did you know like I, I don't have any um, any bad blood with any of my time in the ADF I loved it I guess for me it was one of those things that. Sort of twofold. I saw an opportunity in the market uh, in regards to um, an emerging market within you know the event uh, space with with sort of true grit. Noting that you know like I did a little bit of research uh, in regards to obstacle racing. You know went and visited a few different events. So I saw that there was an opportunity there, and I know, I knew that that opportunity was very time specific. I knew that there was only a window before other events would emerge. So that was one thing. And I guess the second thing was for me, you know, like I I felt as a major in the military that I tipped 
a lot of the boxes for why I joined, you know, and that, I guess, lucky enough to be in a unit that during that particular period deployed a lot. So for me personally, I felt that I'd, I'd ticked a lot of boxes of what I want. I joined, why I joined, the reasoning why, and I guess those two reasons were probably the biggest thing that encouraged me to take that leap of faith, I guess. I note that the company was formed in 2012 and you didn't really leave, I think, till 2014. So there's definitely a, a spot there where you've sort of had a foot in both camps working on your own private sort of future. And I, I quite often, you know, to the guys on the Warrior U program who are joining, you know, who want to join the ADF, I always give the advice, you know, join the ADF, join the Australian Defence Force with a view to getting out. So have a, have a long-term strategic plan, whether that's 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Now, you and I wouldn't know. I didn't know 20 years ago I'd be hosting a podcast and you didn't know that you'd be doing obstacle racing. But there, there, there came a point in your career when you, where you went, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to give myself permission to, to do this and chase this up. And, you know, by all accounts, it's been really successful. Yeah, it's, it's look, I, I won't say it hasn't been a hard slog. You know, there's certainly, from our backgrounds, uh, running operations in the military, there's actually similar aspects with, with sort of True Grit. I'm probably lucky in that aspect, but running uh, running a weekend with True Grit, you know, you might have, let's say, three 4,000 people along for a weekend. Running it is exactly like I run a mission. You know, we I sort of run a headquarters. I run a, a communications network via, you know, small handheld radios with obstacle marshals, I have a medical capability there, um, you know, and, and essentially it's reactive like it is with the military. You know, you, you set up, everyone knows what they're doing and then you're basically reacting. So whether that with True Grid is, you know, someone that gets injured out on course, whether it's an issue at the car park, issue in the festival area, you know, you, you basically, you've got that, uh, that network set up and you've got the assets there to react. So you know, I'm probably lucky in that aspect that there's a lot of similarities. Mm. But then again, you know, there's there's many other things like marketing, for instance. Mm. You know, when we were in the military, no one was on Facebook. No, no one, you know, Instagram wasn't even around. Mm. So learning those aspects and I guess, um, you know, you can't learn everything. So being enabled to bring in the right people around you mm. to do those types of jobs where you might not have those skill sets, mm. you know, is, is another thing that as well as learning, bringing in the right people is probably another key as well. Yeah. Well, my, the job that you and I have both done that's similar, we've both been the officer in charge of recruitment and selection for special forces. So we've both run, you know, the Carter course for SASR and the commando, well, what was the selection and training course? Um, do you think that sort of in some way, empowered you with some of the marketing because i know we both had to run the marketing for instance campaigns for those things and and also we've done board of studies on whether or not people have the right skills knowledge attributes to be to be special forces operators so that sort of gives you a bit of a foot in the hr space so so i mean it must help you when you're selecting people to work for your company and so on and so forth yeah definitely definitely i mean i think after my time within selection I could literally pick within probably a minute to two minutes, I could pick 100% the person that wasn't going to make it. Mm. That million-dollar question about who was going to make it, you know, you could never pick that. Mm. That individual that was either going to pass either of the selection courses. Um, so, yeah, it did give you a good insight into the HR side of things and people and, and even, you know, 
doing selection yourself, you see one side of the fence. Mm. You see this out of control course that you don't know what the hell is going to go on in the next 30 minutes, hour, two days. You have no idea. Mm. Being then on the other side of the fence and running the course and you see that the <laughs> mechanisms behind the course yeah. and you realize the procedures and the processes of why things are done. Yeah. So I think, you know, having done that, it, it, it gives you that balance of seeing both sides of that fence and realizing that it's it's not just run off the cuff. Yeah. Every you know, every single night, the, the amount of hours sleep that the individuals get, you know, the amount of push-ups they do as punishments every day, it's all managed. Yeah. So, yeah, I think from that aspect there, it definitely gives you, um, you know, a, a better insight into um, just individuals in general, I think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about selection for a moment because it, a lot of people listening to this would be in the military and thinking about selection, and I'm going to give away a couple of secrets. If you don't, if you don't agree with me, then we'll, we'll cut them out. It's easy to do. But one thing that was really interesting for me as, as the officer in charge of selection was we had, I think it was CSIRO and psychologists come and, and watch the selection. A hundred percent of the time we thought they were watching the candidates, but they were actually watching my staff. And one of the interesting feedbacks that we got was in the board of studies, anyone's photo who looked aggressive in their photo or like they didn't want to be there in their photo that we had on file for them. So the photos that we took on the first day, guys would target them. They would subconsciously target that guy. But if you were in that, if you had a photo where you were smiling and disengaging, it was a disengaged photo, people were giving you the benefit of the doubt, even if you were a complete clusterfuck. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe that when that came out. And, and it made perfect sense to me the next time we ran the course and I watched it myself. That's a really interesting thing going forwards for things like job interviews and all that sort of stuff. You know, if you're sending a candidate photo of yourself, if you've got that photo where you look like, you know, I want to fight you, which is a lot of guys would do that from the battalions. They're like staring into the camera, grimacing, you know, and then our guys are like, don't want that, dude. Yeah, I think I think it's that that old adage that we have about trying to play the grey man on course. Mm. You know, and a little bit of military jargon, I guess. You know, once an individual moves above the detection threshold, so and that could be through verbally, it could be through physical appearance, mm. um, his tone of voice, anything like that. You know, instructors do tend to hone in on those things. Yeah. Um, you know, which which. Ultimately, you know, is, I guess is the right thing to do because, you know, we're, we're dealing with a high-tempo unit with individuals that need to gel all the time, um, you know, because obviously they're relying on each other for their lives. So, mm. um, but it is, it is interesting now that aspect uh, and how that manifests, I guess, to a higher degree than what normal society would see, yeah. um, you know. Yeah, another, another job you and I have both done is um, sniper platoon commander. And yeah, and, and I know we were the only, we're probably both the only platoon commanders that carried around, yeah, 338s <laughs> on the front of our vehicles. And I think there was a bit of rivalry there trying to get a shot off. But anyway, we won't talk about that. Um, and what, well, the year that I, the first year that I left the sniper platoon when I was a sergeant, I left there to go and become the op sergeant in the tactical assault group. This young guy, I won't mention his name, he's still in. This young guy comes into my sniper platoon the old sniper platoon that I was in. And I was watching it from afar. And uh, he was the new generation of soldier. He'd probably been in five years, six years at the time. And he had, all I remember about him is he had this bloody duck, the duck bill haircut going on, you know, with the spiky hair. And it was definitely straight, you know, it wasn't anything that ASODs would have been happy with, the army standard orders for dress. 
And, you know, as a probably 12-year sergeant at that point or whatever it was, like I was, you know, and I was just transitioning to be a captain, I was on this um, platoon commander and his sergeant, like to pull this guy into line and to get him, you know, it doesn't matter he's on the tactical assault group, he's a fuck-up, he's a useless soldier, he's got his hair like this, blah, blah, blah. And um, it, quite, it was quite contentious, actually. And then what happened is a few months later, I had to do something where I was working with this guy and it was it might have been that I was filling in for the senior sniper because I was the only person qualified to do that job in the company at the time. He might have been away from leave. Let's just say it was something like that. And I had this guy, and I think you know who I'm talking about. And uh, this guy was in that platoon, and I was watching him. We were at the range one day. I was watching him. God, he was good, like super professional, really smart, very good with the weapon systems. Knew exactly what he was doing. And all I had done is base this first impression on this new era of soldier and his you know, and his crazy bloody mohawk type haircut. You know who I'm talking about now, clearly. It's funny because now he's one of the senior guys in the unit, not just one of the senior guys, one of the most senior guys in the unit. He probably doesn't have his hair like that anymore. He's a bit older now. But um, everyone I've ever talked to says how good a soldier this guy was. But I was ready to dismiss this dude at the drop of a hat. And was, what was funny about it was I saw heaps of myself in this guy, re- rebelling, rebelling against um, standards, but holding higher standards in other areas than what was even required. Yeah, did you ever yeah, see? I that? must admit those um, those days um, on team, especially with snipers, the relaxed grooming standards. Mm. I think my year, I think it was zero seven. I think we set a new standard for relaxed grooming. <laughs> um, you know, for, for various reasons. You know, the longer the, I think a few guys were running mullets back in those days, beards moustaches all sorts of stuff you know the, the hipsters um, the hipsters of melbourne and sydney do not understand you know what you're fucking welcome guys we brought the beard back in zero one zero two through to through to 2010 it was us it was a tactical assault group we brought it back oh exactly i mean but we could change a tie in the navy bloody uh wore a beard now everyone in the navy wears a beard yeah um we but, definitely um, we yeah, definitely no, brought it back we you know certainly i guess on team Particularly with snipers having a bit more relaxed grooming, a lot of uh, a lot of eyes were drawn on to um, certain individuals, but you know the vast majority of them could obviously back up yeah. um, that. I guess relaxed grooming versus their uh, yeah. their ability and their performance in their job. You know, relaxed grooming is now clean shaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. True. It's funny how that's actually been reversed, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can pick a soldier. Anyway, we'll get, we don't need to talk about that. So, which is the other thing I was going to say about recruiting, like uh, especially, especially with special forces recruiting, I can pick an SAS operator and I can pick. A- I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Commando, before they finished their courses. And, and I, know, I know that because it's funny. We, we select, we really do select, you know, for special... For special forces, we select two distinctive kind of people, I think. We, we select, you know, introverts that can work well in a team for SAS. And we pick extroverts that can work well by themselves in commandos. That, that to me, nails it. 
Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I look, I think during my time there, I had a few battles in regards to what was an SAS soldier, what was a commando. Mm. Um, certainly, I think both units have definitely got, you know, in SAS is probably a whole bunch of good commandos, and in commandos is probably a whole bunch of good SAS operators. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fair, funny how it rolls out. Yeah, it's a fair call. I, I was talking, I was talking um, a couple of weeks ago to to a mate of mine, you know, an ex SAS guy, and. Um, yeah, we were discussing just how many commandos there are in SAS, you know, and, and how tight at an informal level those two units are and people don't know about it, you know. Anyway, it's different than, than when we were floating around. Uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about True Grit. You know, so what is it? It's in its, what, sixth year this year of running events? Yeah, so we'll just finish off our sixth year. So, yeah, look, we're, we're still, I guess, growing as a company. Um, we were, you know, as I said before, when we first started, you know, we started from scratch. So we were up against, um, at that stage, you know, the, the, the bigger player in the marketplace was Tough mm. And then there was a whole bunch of very small companies. Um, since then, I had another American, I guess you could say, conglomerate Spartan come across to Australia. So, yeah, it's, it's been, you know, a ever-expanding growth in the industry itself mm. to the point now, I guess, over the last probably two, three years, we've now come off that peak in regards to companies that, that are around. Mm. You know, the the strongest have survived, so to speak, and a lot of the, the smaller companies have just died off. Mm. Um, so, you know, we sort of sit, we're, 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 I guess we're, we're really happy where we are at the moment. We're probably, you know, second, you know, in line with, I guess, Spartan in terms of numbers across Australia. Uh, we're the only company in Australia that actually operates on the on um, uh, not only just on the east coast. So we mm. do operate in Adelaide and Perth. Mm. So um, we are the only sort of company, I guess, Australia owned the the bigger ones. So yeah, we're we're happy in our place. And you know, there's a number of different points we're moving into at the moment. You know, trying to expand into Asia under a license agreement. Uh, we ran the World Championships this year in Sydney. Um, so yeah, we're we're trying to ever evolve as well and adapt to mm. that changing environment as well. Mm. Yeah, a twenty-four hour enduro event is no mean feat, is it? I mean, that's not <laughs> you can't train for that, surely. Would I do it myself? Uh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. It, it's um, we're uh, we operated as the Australian Championship for the last sort of four years. And then we had the opportunity to license to um, operate this year as the World Championship 24-hour enduro. And um, I guess from you know from from our sort of backgrounds, it's one of those. There's you know for for your viewers uh, out there, there's one unique period um, in selection that that well, commando selection is called demarcation, where you uh, you don't really sleep, eat for three days, and you just walk around lifting items. You doing go, sort of high intensity, yeah. medium intensity, low intensity activities for three days straight. Yeah, you're basically guess, basically in ketosis for three days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you sort of don't remember too much of it, but um, luckily. But, uh, you know, the 24-hour enduro, I guess, is, is you know, there's a lot of aspects of that that, that are based off, off special forces selection in general. You know, that, that mental resilience, you know, for, to go for 24 hours, and I guess there's there's a lot of trail runs and a lot of running activities that are 24 hours. Mm. But when you think about this particular event where you're going through swamp, water, dams, you know, you've got height activities, you're doing both lower level running, but you've actually got upper body strength activities mm. while you're muddy, wet, cold. It, it is, you know, we sort of picture it as Australia's toughest 24 hour race. 
Awesome. And mate, what makes a really good obstacle course racer? Are they a 10-kilometer champion? Are they a CrossFit athlete? Are they someone from F45? You know, is it is it a, a triathlete? What makes what would make a what would be a good person that could jump in and dominate? Or would it be me? Uh, look, I think it's it's <laughs> a lot of the guys that have done well have been you know ex sort of triathlon type individuals. Mm. You know, essentially, I mean, you, you need to have some type of runner background. You mm. know, to have the miles in the legs, mm. you know, to, to go the distances and to have the speed in the legs, mm. you know, the, the majority of, I guess, an obstacle course is is running. Mm. Uh, but then rounding that off with having good body weight strength, mm. you know, your ability to climb ropes, um, scale uh, uh, obstacles and that sort of stuff, it, it needs to be there. So, mm. but I guess, you know, certain activities, probably crossfitters and that sort of stuff is probably too, too sort of short. Mm. Duration, I guess you could say. Mm. Yeah, I, I notice uh, a lot looking of looking at sort of endurance athletes. I notice a lot of CrossFitters on on you know on some of the workouts like Murph, for instance, where you're going to be going for an hour. That last, you know, to do it properly and, and not compartmented, but to go straight through that last, you know, mile run. You watch a lot of them falling off because they they're not used to doing anything anything for, for an hour which obviously there's other brings into account other fuel sources you know you're starting to use fat for fuel and glycogen stores are gone and you know you're not using there's you know they might have done a whole heap of lactate type fueling during that event and then at the end of it you're now depleted so you're right i think i think a, a good even a top end crossfitter is going to struggle at six seven eight hour mark you know yeah. whereas a triathlete's probably more start steady maintain that pace you know but then you've got the 10k runners as well which i noticed dominate a lot of the spartan races oh yeah definitely look you know i guess it's the uh, obstacle racing is any anything from about five kilometers in distance through to you know a 24 hour race some of these guys are doing 170 odd kilometers mm. uh so uh, 500 obstacles if that makes sense mm. so yeah you know someone with Either triathlon, or even, you know, trail running. Um, as you said, probably minimum sort of ten kilometres sort of distance runners and that sort of stuff tend to do very well just because mm-hmm. they've got those miles in the legs. And you know, as as we know, a lot of people might have rot- miles in their legs on flat sort of bitumen running, but you know, obstacle course, none of the course is flat. So there's a lot of mountainous terrain. You know, as I said, differing environments, having your feet wet all the time, muddy, having your whole body, you know. Uh, there's barbed wire there's all sorts of stuff you're grazing your knees your elbows your hands you know it's it's not i guess at that semi-professional level it's not for everyone but you know i guess that's why it's so enticing to the average person because it's something that you just you don't do or you can't do at the gymnasium Mm. and and i guess that group aspect of being together as a team and completing something is is what makes it so unique yeah so they're always it's always done in teams is it adam um, I guess at the, you know, outside of the competition side of things, 95% of my market is, is people, groups of people and friends that come together. Yeah. You know, our, um, funnily enough, our, our biggest demographic is 30 to 40-year-old women. Yeah, they've probably just come off Commando Steve's um, training program and now they're testing themselves on True Grit. Yeah, true, true. I mean, a lot of mothers' groups, a lot of um, female gym groups that come together. Um, you know, as I said, it's it's 
it's something that you don't do every week. Certainly, you don't you don't go and do an obstacle course every week or every Tuesday night with people. So it's something that's it's out of the blue, but it, it is very much that um, that challenge where you know a lot of the obstacles themselves you you majority can't complete them by yourselves. So there's that aspect of getting together as a team to do the whole event, but even just challenging yourself at those specific obstacles. Mm you know, helping your mate over a wall, you know, mm. whatever that obstacle may be. So there's that very cohesive teamwork that's mm. required to get and complete the uh, actual course. What happens if you've got two, you know, alphas that they're, they're totally going head to head against each other on an obstacle race and then you've got a 12-foot wall? What happens? Well, I mean, look, the, the 12-foot wall, I'm lucky enough that I'm tall enough that I can get over a 12-foot wall. <laughs> uh, those that are vertically challenged, yeah. uh, you know, we might say, um certainly um if you know for us we we put on there the average punter that, that comes along we, we don't punish anyone that can't do an obstacle mm. certainly at the competition level you know anyone that can't do obstacles generally they have burpees yeah you know, it could be yeah. 15 20 burpees if you can't do the obstacle mm. so yeah have you ever seen a crossfitter do burpees mate for, for military guys like you and me it's like what the hell is that they haven't they're not at full extension they haven't clapped above their head They've gone one foot at a time to, you know, it's hilarious. It's probably similar to the way they do chin-ups or kipping, I think it's cool. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm guilty of that these days as well. Because you have to be <laughs> to compete against them, don't you? You've got to do butterfly chin-ups to be able to post a good time. Um, yeah, so, what? What? like, in America, they've got these awesome ultra marathons. I've thought about doing one for a while. And with no training, I'll just rock up and give it a crack. And then and then it'll be what it'll be. You'll either finish it or you won't. Um but it, it seems to me that True Grit is well-placed in Australia to create an iconic race you know, through the Simpson Desert or something, something iconic around the world like the iconic races that are through you know, um, Arizona or in Morocco and places like that. Yeah, I think, um, you know... Or am I, about- am I taking you down a path you don't want to talk about for uh, planning reasons? No, no, no. Look, I think, you know, if, if we go back sort of 15-odd years ago and you think about what did people aspire to do? You know, a lot of people, basically, they aspired to complete a marathon Mm. because that's the style of event that was out there 15, Mm. 20 years ago. Mm. Now I think that, you know, every year we're, as a, uh, I guess as a species, we're we're making leaps and bounds in what we actually physically can do. Yes, mate. So every every year, you know, there's a new race. No. They're racing across deserts. The distances get longer. Um, and I guess that's, you know, that, that's where the, the 24 hour enduro bore, you know, born out of, you know, taking that next step and, um, are we looking at anything else? <laughs> <laughs> you don't oh, have look, to. We're always looking at things. Yeah. Um, I guess for, for us at the moment, you know, we're trying to obviously tap into an Asian market at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's obstacle races only just taking off in Asia. Um, they're getting a taste for it and that sort of stuff. Um, but look, you know, the, 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 the obstacle racing community in general is growing. You know, I think the next step for the community itself, it's starting to build in a number of countries now, you know, and it's getting to the point where it's it's almost on the verge of getting into the Olympics and that sort of stuff. So I think that's, wow. that's probably, you know, the next step itself within the sport of obstacle racing. Yeah. There's, there's some um, triathlons around the world, as, uh, you know, as well that are on the high end of extreme. So, you know, swimming across... Um, near freezing fords and then you know riding you know hundreds of kilometers and then running up a mountain you know and australia seems ideal for 
those extreme type of things, the snowy country and stuff like that, you know. Um, I'll leave that. Yeah, look, I'll park I, that there I, for you. I have all these ideas yeah. in regards to different activities. And it's funny now that you actually have an appreciation from a business background of what costings are to yeah. put on. Yeah. Even, you know, approvals to do stuff, uh, you know, with councils and different levels of government. As soon as I get these ideas, I just immediately see these headaches yeah. of yeah. what it takes to put on such events. And then... And then just doing your, you know, you're looking at cost analysis versus, you know, the the, the revenue you can make. I mean, those type of events, mm. it's only so many people that can do them. Yeah. You know, which means you either charge an absolute bomb to actually do them or you have to bring in external sponsors to offset your, you know, your revenue somehow. So, mm. um, yeah, I do have crazy ideas and, and I would love to. I guess it's just that cost versus revenue that just keeps ticking away in the back of my mind on mm. on how to run those events. Yeah, of course. Awesome. I want to ask you, off the topic now, what was the worst day that you ever had on operations? Uh, easily, easily the worst day. Uh, I mean, look, in 2010, um, I was in the Battle of Shawali Kot. Uh, which, you know, there was a, a Victoria Cross that was awarded during the battle. Um, I think to, I think it's still the only battle honour that's been awarded since the Vietnam War. So that was probably exciting, I, I guess. For me, the worst singly uh, easily would be um, on the same tour uh, in 2010 when we had the chopper crash. Yeah. You know, I can distinctly being, um, I was not on the particular mission. There was a platoon mission, at, at, you know, during that uh, night. It was mm. a night, air mobile, a uh, number of helicopters um, going to target uh, Taliban leadership when uh, the Black Hawk helicopter went down. Mm. Um, I, I can still remember standing in our operations room um, looking at, a computer screen um, and you know in those days and presumably still today you operate a like a same time chat type device where you know you chat on the computer and it's live and I can still distinctly remember seeing the words fallen angel mm. come up on the screen mm. uh, you know for those I guess fallen angel I guess is a, is a code word for uh, an aircraft that's that's gone down mm. so at that stage you know, we didn't know if it had been a, a soft landing or a hard landing or, or, you know, if the aircraft had come under, you know, under control had come down or been shot out of the sky. We just didn't know. Mm. And so I guess, you know, it was late at night in the early hours and I guess, you know, for those next eight, ten hours, um, as we got further information and, and found out, I guess, the the um, the members of, of the company, you know, the, the three members that passed and then the other seven that were catastrophically injured mm. in, in that crash, mm. you know, that was singly, easily the, the, mm. the worst, I guess, period. You know, and, and I physically actually wasn't on the ground there. I was mm. sitting in the, in the headquarters, you know, in, in Tarrant and, um, you know, watching everything unroll and trying to get the assets out there to assist the guys on the ground mm. um, as best we could, you know. And then after those incidents, as we know, you know, whenever you have a, um, you know, a KIA or, you know, someone is uh, is fatally wounded overseas, you, you then go into different mechanisms. You know, mm. you're looking at supporting the rest of the troops that are there uh, and you're looking at repatriation, you know, for, um, for those deceased members. 
you know, everything else rolls on for that. Uh, supporting the members, noting the fact that, you know, you've still got the rest of your tour to complete, mm. you know. So you're supporting them, but you're also keeping that, you know, that cognizant view that we've still got a job to do. Mm. So I think, you know, you've, you've definitely got the, the, the hard parts of what physically happens, you know, in that moment. Yeah. But then those after effects of what you're, what you have to put in place, but also keeping people focused on the job at hand. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of my, as you know, one of my best friends was the platoon commander and I arrived maybe five days later for our handover. Wasn't long after. And, um, I, I just remember how, and I took a lot of strength from how you guys handled that, you know, and the resilience that I could see around the place and the fact that there had been an obvious um, problem that you guys had overcome and had said, well, we're not going to let this any single day in time affect us for the rest of our lives. We're just going to deal with it and move on. And then he said that same thing to me when I came back from my tour in 2010. He goes, don't ever let a single day in time determine who you are for the rest of your life. It can affect it, but don't let it determine it. You know, And I think that's a, a testament to you guys for handling that the way you guys handled it. You know, I think a lot of guys owe their mental health to just how well the headquarters handled that particular instance. The headquarters from the commando unit I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, in, in 2008, uh, on, on a separate tour, we, we, we lost another um, we lost another commando in a, in a firefight. And, you know, what was interesting on that tour was, you know, we came back. Um, that was a, a vehicle, long, longer range vehicle operation where we were ambushed by a, uh, a Taliban element. And it, it was one of those things where, you know, we, we had a fatality, we had a number of uh, wounded, mm. uh, we had actually a number of vehicles that were like Swiss cheese that we yeah, had to that's right. basically drag back to base. And then for myself, I was the, I was the, the 2IC of, of the company um, on the trip and, and, you know, we were sitting there and because we'd had the fatality, we, we knew that in, you know, four or five days there was going to be the repatriation ceremony, you know, where you bid farewell to the um, to that deceased member before he makes his way back to his family back in Australia. You know, and and that was, I guess, 2008 was, you know, it was some of the earlier fatalities we'd had. So not a lot of guys, I guess, had experienced that. And and particularly, you know, we, we, I sat down with the OC, the major at the time, and, you know, we, we sort of discussed that we can't sit here for four or five days. So basically... While there was elements of planning for the repatriation, we basically went straight back into planning a mission. Yeah. And the following, not that particular night, the following night, we redeployed and we actually redeployed back to that village and hit that village hard. Yeah. Uh, by night, and it was, you know, it wasn't about, um, wasn't about revenge, you know, any, any anything like that, but it was about getting the guys refocused back on the job. And certainly coming back from that mission, you know, I think the guys Switched felt back on. a sense of, I guess, a sense of accomplishment. You know, certainly during the ambush, we, we in no uncertain terms, felt like we'd had our asses handed to us. So, yeah. you know, getting back, doing that subsequent mission and then making it back for for the repatriation ceremony, I think it put the guys in, in, a, in a better headspace. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Most civilians don't know that we quite often got our asses handed to us and then would have to bounce back and, and try and win the next time. They don't understand that we... Sometimes they had our measure. Absolutely. 
Oh yeah, I mean, look, there was numerous times where you know you you and I both know what the the term tethered goat means. <laughs> um, the Taliban are not stupid. You know, yeah. we would literally break ourselves down into smaller elements mm. to entice the Taliban mm. to attack us, yeah. and that you know that's where the the, the tethered goat basically mm. saying came from. Yeah. So yeah, you know, these guys. I mean, I don't mind that it. element that we got ambushed. Yeah. Those elements basically had fought, you know, a couple of decades before against the Russians. Yeah. That were still in the same fighting pits that okay. they had ambushed Russian mechanized yeah. units in. You know, yeah. so we we're on a ground of their choosing. At on that particular occasion, we we're on a time of their choosing. Mm. That particular day, we thought we had taken everything into account. We put snipers in Overwatch. We'd crash out and down mortars ready to go for mm. an element that was moving through the valley. These guys got into position. These guys had got into position before we had even got there. Yeah. So, you know, as far as we were concerned, we thought we'd done everything. Yeah. But they were already inside our Uber loop. They yeah. were already in position and yeah. ready and waiting for us. Yeah. Experienced something similar. And I've got to admit, I don't mind being the tethered goat when it's on my terms. Just don't like being the tethered goat for another force element to come and target off the back of it. But anyway, we don't need to go there, mate. Um, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> hey, um, so just to just to sort of ask you one final question. Um, the rock at 2 Commando Regiment must mean a lot to you. you know, I know it means a lot to me, although I don't go and see it anymore, I guess. But um, just by virtue of there being a rock somewhere with all the names on it of the guys, you know, and 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 having that forever immortalised, I think that's a that's a really big deal. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I guess that's one of the symbols that whether you're at the unit or whether you're a past member and you visit the unit, hmm. it symbolises, I guess, everything about the unit, but it symbolises a sacrifice. Yeah, and you know, for for me, I guess when we Myself and, and the other individual, when we started the started True Grip, you know, we, we basically one of the one of the founding reasons why we wanted to start True Grip was obviously, you know, like we we support two military charities, Legacy and the Commando Welfare Trust. Yep. And I guess for us, you know, we I guess we've raised a lot of money for the Commando Welfare Trust, but one of the other things was actually brand awareness, mm. bringing brand awareness to what the trust is and everything else. And I, I guess. You know, a lot of a lot of events these days you see have a attached charity. Mm. Um, you know, they basically jump on jump on whatever the, is is the, the biggest charity of the day, mm. which is great. You know, they're, they're obviously you know, making um, making money for charities and all that sort of stuff is always good. I guess for us, um, you know, hand in hand with that rock, doing what we can do to give back and actually seeing where it goes. Mm. Um, and assisting in that brand awareness, I guess, is probably one of the biggest things for us and was one of those big reasons why we started True Grit. Cool. Um, so definitely, you know, coming across that rock, and, and I know that there's a number of guys at the moment trying to do some other initiatives, mm. and, you know, it, it's, it, it's about, it's about you know, everyone, everyone remembers all of the guys that had passed away mm. because it makes the front pages you know so mm -hmm. i think that rock you know it, it not only it not only symbolizes those of, that have passed but it also symbolizes all of those today that are still mm. fighting that fight mm. uh, and when i say that you know like the, the mental challenges today with ptsd all of those guys that 
you know, that have been wounded. Mm. You know, like those guys that have been wounded that have catastrophic injuries yeah. mentally, physically. Mm. You know, these are the guys that no one hears about. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I guess that rock, it, it, it means a lot of things, mm. but, you know, ultimately it, it means sacrifice. Yeah. Cool, man. Hey, Adam McNamee, thanks very much for coming on the Warrior You podcast, talking about true grit, talking about some of your military experience. Yeah, and I think that it'd be great, you know, to sit down and have a more structured uh, podcast about our military deployments, I think, in the future. I think that everyone would probably like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. And, um, yeah, where can people find out about True Grit? Yeah, so um, biggest one, obviously, is just the website. So www.truegrit.com.au. Yep. Um, obviously, we're on um, social media on both Facebook and Instagram. You mm-hmm. can just look us up and just type in True Grit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, entries are online. Cool, Leo. All right, and I'm hoping to do one of your activities, mate, wearing a Warrior U t-shirt and raising a heap of uh, the Warrior U members. Cool, well, man. You have a free entry to the 24-hour Enduro, mate, so ah, there. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> all right adam cool man take care all right mate. Thanks I'll, for that. i'll look you up when i come to sydney mate obstacle racing is all the rage across the world and here in australia we are sport for quality if you want to test your physical and mental toughness then get outside and compete in true grit it's a military inspired obstacle course i know it's legit because i served in special forces with a co-founder and managing director adam mcnamee and to celebrate our bromance the good dudes at True Grit have created a discount code for listeners of this podcast. Use the code WARRIORU2019, that's WARRIORU2019, for 10% off every one of the 2019 events. And hopefully, I'll see you there wearing one of my Warrior U t-shirts. Catch you, gang. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.